haven't climbed up to Enchanted Rock. Drink a cold shiner down. Hey, let me tell you, days like today, it is such a privilege to get behind this microphone to hang out with you guys and i want to thank you for tuning in whether this is online or on the radio or or maybe you're listening to a podcast later on great show ahead makes me grin ear to ear to just be in this opportunity to sit here and talk with you about what's going on other sides of texas again thanks for tuning in telling a friend that you hang out on the other side of Texas. I talked with my marketing folks today. They said, hey, more and more people listen to that podcast. And that's to thank, uh, I've got you guys to thank for that. So thanks for, we're just building this piece by piece. And uh, you're going to have a real winner here before too long. I'm Jay West, Texas. Lisa, across the way is Queen Catherine Wilkes, and she is punching the numbers, punching the board, making things work. We are broadcasting from the studios where Buddy Holly became famous, proving that you can be independent and still wind up making some something of yourself. You don't have to go down those those hardline ideological roads. <sighs> don't get me started on that, but I will get started today with this. The Quinnipiac poll, a university in Connecticut, the Quinnipiac poll comes out. People consider it to be a gold standard of sorts, uh, an independent poll. I don't know about a gold standard, pretty good standard. And typically they have some good numbers, except for 2016 Trump and Hillary Clinton. But uh, they register, they take polls on registered voters. And today, just this afternoon, a new poll comes out regarding the Texas Senate. And it has Ted Cruz at 50%, Beto O'Rourke at 39%. Here's a breakdown of that 50-39. With men, Ted Cruz leads 57-35. With women, Cruz still leads 44 42. The white vote is Cruz at 62-28. And it's so curious, both of their names, if I can be independent for just a moment. I mean, <laughs> you have Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. So the guy who fills out the census form as a Hispanic's name is Ted. The guy who's Irish-American is Beto, even though I think he puts down Robert, Beto being a derivative of a form of Roberto in Spanish. But anyhow, with blacks, O'Rourke leads 70-15. But here's the kicker. You know, whenever I was a kid, we loved the Alan Jackson CDs, and we'd listen to Alan Jackson. Alan Jackson had a song called Someday. And I told her someday. But he ends it by saying, But sometimes someday just never comes. And that's what, pardon my singing, but that's what the Texas Democratic Party has said. Like it's counterintuitive anything that you do in business or even with this radio program or anything. You focus on the 20 feet in front of you, and you hope for a great end result. If you go for the end result, you aren't going to take care of the business in front of you mm-hmm. in the way because you're going to get lethargic. You're going to get fat. You're going to get late, like, well, eventually we're going to get it. And that is exactly my analysis right now on the Texas Democratic Party is, oh, well, the Hispanics are coming. The Hispanics are Well, are they coming? 
because if this poll is right, and again, I've got some, I'm really tentative about polls following 2016, but are the Hispanics coming? Because if registered voters are right, and that's the other part of it too, well, if people would just register to vote, well, if and if, ifs and buts, candies and nuts, what a Merry Christmas we'd all have. Someday, sometimes someday never comes. And that seems to be, to me, the picture that begins to form in this Senate race. Because if... Wilson! Uh, yeah. Wilson! 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 Just, just, just like Wilson, it is a figment of an imagination in Democrats' mind that, hey... Uh, this is a real thing and it's going to gonna, it's a volleyball okay it's a volleyball it's not a real thing and until you go out and make it a real thing it won't be a real thing so i just think about that in terms of castaway and tom hanks stuck on an island and you know the hispanics are well, okay the hispanics are coming well this should be the race you've got a major el paso um, Somebody who spent a lot of money visited almost every Texas county. I think he's already completed 254 counties. And he's running, in, I think, admirably with no Democratic apparatus in this state, except for the ghost of Ann Richards. There is no apparatus on him. He is in many ways building a Democratic Party apparatus. But still, to to be even within... Not just down two points, but to be outside of a head of ten points is a problem. And like Wilson and Castaway, it's the Democratic Party is Wiley Cody and the Hispanic vote is the roadrunner. Like, are you gonna get it or aren't you gonna get it? And then you know, I I was thinking about this today too. What would you do if Maybe just maybe the Texas Democrats are Kevin Arnold and the Hispanic vote is Winnie Cooper maybe she's just never going to come around Kevin maybe you need to be more aggressive like in your teens and in your 20s to make sure that that thing works and I I look at all this and I just the Democrats are writing checks that they can't cash at this point and it is in, in the, i want to i don't want to get off into my normal rant but this coalition of gender preference and lgbtq and entitlements and making that's not a winning coalition so what are you going to do and the real question for me is some follow-up with well why do you prefer Cruz to o'rourke and what are their dynamics there? And the Texas Tribune wrote a piece today about how Hispanic identity is playing out. This is before the Quinnipiac poll came out. And Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, is about to be on. And we'll ask him about that. But, you know, by and large, you never... The first rule of politics is to assume nothing. It's almost like journalism. Verify, verify, verify. And in Texas political campaigning, you assume nothing. And so it's not the destination, it's the process in between. And it's, it's like a guy who I really admire and respect. Whenever I started this program, 
I asked him, what's this look like? And he said, Jay, the number one mistake that you can make is to go on the assumption that it's going to play out the way that you want it to play, like that, that paradigm or, or that utopia that you see in the end. You need to fight and push to make it play out the way that you want to play out. It can't just be, well, it's going to be this eventually. You have to make it that eventually right now. And that's exactly what the Texas Democrats did. I saw an editor in the Texas, in the Houston Chronicle today. Uh, it said, essentially, the Texas Democrats are the Washington generals of politics. Like, the Globetrotters are always going to win, but maybe eventually we'll, we will win. And uh, what I really don't understand is that there's this big gaping hole emerging in the Texas GOP where there are people who say, look, I'll go with your platform. We were talking with about this yesterday with Scott Braddock. I'll go with your platform 70% of the time. I heard Tucker, excuse me, Tucker Carlson gave an address to some firefighters. I wish I had, I'm just pulling this out of memory right now. You can go to YouTube, look for Tucker Carlson address firefighters. And he stated, and I'm just taking his word that 13% of the American public goes with Republican economics up and down the line. Only 13%. And so this idea in Texas that you got to be with the platform 98% of the time, like you're an Aggie. It's almost like the Texas Aggies. Like, you're a 2%er if you don't go with us 100% of the time. Well, there are a lot of 70% Republicans in the state, and I would argue out great many in west texas whenever you start talking about vouchers you start talking about agriculture policy you start talking about access to health care you're with the republicans some 65 percent of the time at that point and this idea that you got to be with them and that's the you've got cindy ash who's running for republican party of texas chairman they call it chairman not chairperson so she's running for chairman and then you've got old jim running for the same thing for essentially to be not to be real he was appointed and so now he wants to be uh elected for the first time and he's running these purity tests on texas house republicans i hear from these guys a lot and say well sorry jimbo not going with you can't go with you on this one because guess what in our districts health care matters Mental health care matters, as we'll talk with Sarah Davis coming up here in about 30 minutes. Talk to her about that. And at the end of the day, you just think, well, maybe this isn't working out. And there's this big gaping hole, and I don't understand why we have to be force-fed these things. And still, it is Kevin Arnold. And still, it is the Roadrunner. And still, it is uh, Wilson with the Texas Democrats. And they've got to get over that because sometimes, someday, never comes. Focus on what's in front of you. Build your coalitions. Just my independent view. He is executive editor of the Texas Tribune. He is my political counselor. I'm going to rest back on the couch and ask him things that are really grinding my gears. Ross Ramsey, how are you? I'm great. How are you, sir? I'm bothered. As I usually am on Wednesdays, and I'm glad that you're here to counsel me. What can I do for you? <laughs> what, 
what can you do for yourself i I went to a counselor once and there was no help he was just kept on asking me asking me questions uh today governor greg abbott laid out his uh school safety initiative ross give us some down the middle what did you make of it you know he went where kind of i thought he would go he didn't do um he didn't go into gun control much he went into uh, make trying to make the schools safer by what they call hardening the buildings you know uh, controlling exits and entrances and all that kind of stuff talking about getting more security personnel possibly including teachers but not necessarily including teachers and other school workers you know with guns in that he talked a lot about mental health screening and counseling and services and uh, what he stayed away from really was conversation about um, restricting gun use, about background checks for guns, about uh, some of the things that, you know, uh, gun control advocates are for. And, you know, in that, the governor is, you know, pretty much in line politically with uh, Republican primary voters. Uh, he's definitely out of line with Democrats, and I would expect to hear some noise from the other side here pretty soon, Lupe Valdez, the Democratic nominee, said today she thought that the governor's ideas fell short. Um, but he did, after the three days of roundtables last week, more or less what, you know, um, I was expecting him to do. But he said that he wanted responsible gun ownership. And I'm reading this as a layperson, as a person would read this as the news comes out today. And what does that mean to be a responsible gun owner? Is he going to look at background checks or what's he going to do on that front? You know, what he was talking about there, I think, was the idea of gun locks and gun safes for people with kids at home. And, you know, but uh, that's also short of saying I'm going to require this. Uh, There was some conversation last week about uh, keeping kids away from guns at home and what you could do to require people keeping guns at home to do. And there was some blowback pretty quickly from the Freedom Caucus within the House and some folks in that group saying you can't really regulate people in their own homes and that that was uh, not a not a conservative principle. So saying responsible gun ownership is a way to say, you know, people ought to do that and we're not going to make up the law. Hmm. So... Lots of talk with this Texas Tech initiative. To, uh, I said this yesterday, and you may jive with this or not, but essentially to profile kids in the margins, um, to try to seek these kids out, because I think the variables are the weapons that these kids use who've done these school shootings, and then, and I call them kids, but even up into their 20s, and then to make sure that they aren't in the margins. Uh, how doable is the Texas Tech model in your in your mind? You know, it's you know, it's got some promise. I you know, I don't know how doable it is and I don't know that there's an end all be all here, but you know, that's a program that's already out there that is working to some extent. The governor sees a way to jump into that, piggyback on it and maybe grab some of these guys before they, you know, actually take any action and you know, maybe you can um, spot these signs early and help them out. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd use the word profiling. I think they're trying to identify um, kids, as you said, and you know, as I as I call them, trying to identify kids in trouble before you know they act 
on that trouble, you know, try to help them out. Um, and the first thing you've got to do is identify them. Whether that particular program is the best way to do it, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert and wouldn't say. Well, uh, we are reaching out to Ted Mitchell, who's head of the Texas Tech Health Sciences Center, and I'll just read you a paragraph from Marissa Evans there at the TexasTribune.org. Uh, since its launch, more than 400 students have been referred to the program, 200 screened for anxiety, depression, loneliness, isolation, and whether they're prone to violent violence or violent thoughts those screenings can lead to psychiatric appointments and sometimes immediate hospitalizations and arrests for planning violent incidents like shootings and that according to a a texas tech health sciences center brief from april 30 uh it's so you've been watching this a long time how do you implement something like what texas tech is doing across the state ross you just, you know, you put more money in the program and get more people on the ground and, you know, take what has been essentially a promising but limited program and, and, and knock out some of the limits. I mean, you know, oftentimes when the legislature um, or, or any executive branch agency is messing with new policy, they start with what they call a pilot program. And mm-hmm. I think here they're just treating that as a pilot program and saying, well, let's, you know, take it statewide and see what happens. Yeah. Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, as we tarry on here with all of my political grumbling for Ross to uh, help me figure out. Uh, so, Alex Ura and Patrick Svitek write a piece earlier today, published on Texas Tribune, before the Quinnipiac poll. Hispanic identity is already shaping the race between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. In the high-profile Senate race between incumbent Ted Cruz and challenger Beto O'Rourke, there are numerous ways in which their unique relationships with the Hispanic community have already intersected. So that's this morning. Fast forward to this afternoon, or around noon today. Hispanics, according to Quinnipiac, Cruz leads 46-44. What do you make of that, Ross Ramsey? Uh, he's a better-known candidate. And in a race where you have a candidate who's known, Ted Cruz has run statewide before. He's certainly a national figure after running for president against a candidate who has run for Congress from one of the 36 congressional districts in the state. You know, some of that is name ID, and some of it is, you know, if, if I look at, you know, I think some of it is name, um, ID is not the right word, but name familiarity. If I look at that and I don't know either candidate and one's name is O'Rourke and the other's name is Cruz, one is more like mine than the other and that may be absent any other information than the name I pick. Okay, so that's... I think, this, I, I think the race is going to be, um, you know, all of these races, there's also some polling in the governor's race, all of these races are going to develop as voters become more aware and involved in who these people are and, and what they're about. So what I hear you saying there, Ross, is that you don't think the race is firmed up in its messaging yet. As we talked to you in late May, that over the summer there may be some messaging that begins to shape up, and it's not necessarily about name ID at that point. It's about voter outreach. and Because my understanding is that Quinnipiac is only approaching at this point registered voters but over the summer some people may say well i recognize that name but 
I may not go with that name because of A, B, and C in political messaging. Or I may go with that name because of... I, you know, I think some of it's political messaging. I think most of the messaging is going to be, you know, September, October. The messaging during the, you know, in terms of issues, the messaging now is going to be something of a race to tell voters who Beto O'Rourke is. And by a race, I mean O'Rourke is going to be trying to tell people about himself in a positive way at the same time that Cruz is trying to tell people about Beto O'Rourke in a negative way. And the reason that's focused on O'Rourke is that most voters haven't formed an impression of him yet. So both of the candidates in their, in their way want to help out, jump in. And, um, you know, I think that's really what the summer's going to be about. It's Cruz trying to tear him down and O'Rourke trying to build himself up. And then we get to September and October, and then we're talking about you know, the quality of the candidates and the issues in the race and, and whatever the political environment of the moment is when they, as we go toward the November 6th election. So, Ross Ramsey, last week we talked while I was on the couch and you were talking me through all these issues. You said that you felt like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this was the impression I took away, that you felt like Beto O'Rourke, rather than Mike Collier or Lupe Valdez, was running the head of the ship for the Texas Democrats in Texas. It is late May, and people have not formed an opinion on Beto O'Rourke. How problematic is that? I, you know, it's normal. I think we're at that part of the cycle where, you know, the Democrats um, like him. They chose him in their primary. There were some bumps there that I think you can attribute to, you know, again, the fact that he's not really, really well known yet, and you know, politics isn't on most people's minds right now. I, you know, we, it's hard for us to remember that because we're playing in this and watching this so closely all the time. But this is pretty easy, pretty early in the political season, and a lot of voters really don't tune in in any meaningful way until after Labor Day. So what we're doing right now is laying groundwork. The candidates are going to spend the summer, you know, trying to define each other a little bit. Mainly they're going to be raising money. And when I say candidates, I don't just mean these two. I mean up and down the ballot. Yeah. And they're gearing up for, you know, the 9 or 10 or 12 weeks before the election that starts really around, you know, when the summer's over and you're back from Disney World or whatever and uh, ready to go back to school and on one hand and get the kids out of the house on the other hand. and uh, That's when politics really starts up. So I don't think it's unusual to have a an under-informed electorate at this point in the cycle. Okay. So... Let me ask you, I just did my monologue on, you remember that old Alan Jackson song, Someday, where he's talking about how this, how he can never get the girl and sometimes someday never comes. And it just seems to me whether, and I use several analogies there about how Hispanics were, the Texas Democrats, if the Texas Democrats are Wiley Cody, uh, Hispanics were their roadrunner, or you know, even I uh, use Kevin Arnold in Winnie Cooper. Uh, several, like, are they going to come? Or are they not? And I lay all that out to ask you this: What if we're sitting in October, in numbers from Quinnipiac and other Jim Henson at the University of Texas, Texas Tribune? What if numbers come back in the beginning of October and it's still Cruz forty six forty four? Is that Hispanic ship? ever going to come in for Texas Democrats? You know, the the problem Texas Democrats have is, is a little bit twofold here. You know, the, the idea here is that Hispanics vote for Democrats, and that's true of the Hispanics who vote. So there's an assumption 
who do vote. I'm not sure that's right, but that's, you know, a lot of people make that assumption. Mm-hmm. So the first assumption is that Hispanics sitting at home are, you know, split between Democrats and Republicans exactly as Hispanics have typically been split before. The other one is that, you know, this is a relatively young population, and people, you know, it's a normal pattern that people tend to vote more as they get a little bit older, get into their late 20s, early 30s, they're starting families, they're paying attention to things like school uh, and the quality of education and things like that, and they get specifically more interested. The Hispanic population is a little bit younger than the other populations of the state, and, and there's some some issues there. And then the last thing is, you know, people tend to vote whose parents voted, and you're changing a family and a generational habit here, and the Democrats haven't obviously, you know, found the the uh, silver bullet on this one. They haven't figured out exactly how to get those people to the polls, and neither have the Republicans. You know, the Republicans, if if you got numbers like what they're talking about in this poll for Ted Cruz, and it was apparent to Republicans that their candidates could win Hispanic votes, they would be all about getting Hispanics to the polls. He is Ross Ramsey at Ross Ramsey on Twitter. And I want to close out with this. The contestant, you write a piece every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And let me just say for a second, people ask me, because they know I got back to Texas in late 2011, how would you get so queued up on Texas politics? And I don't know that I am, because I lay on Ross Ramsey's couch every Wednesday here on Oxford, Texas. But what I did was I just started printing off Ross Ramsey analysis. I'm not doing this to patronize you, Ross, but this is what I did. I found a guy who was down the middle, and I just began to print off your pieces. I've got a stack still. I've got a stack in my in my file cabinet of Ross Ramsey pieces, and I highlighted them. I underlined. I wrote question marks, and you write a piece there. And I was always waiting for the paywall to come down on me to crush me, but there is no paywall at TextTribune.org. But uh, you do write a piece every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And in this one, in your most recent, well, it's on the 25th, the contestants in a handful of the most competitive general election races in Texas weren't in place until this week when Tuesday runoffs determine who will be in November. How is uh, the Texas election changing watch lists one for another? Uh, You know, we had a watch list for the runoffs where we were watching the intramurals between you know, different kinds of Republicans and different kinds of Democrats, you know, a lot of races between, um, you know, moderate Republicans or business Republicans and conservative Republicans or libertarian Republicans, however you want to label those folks. And now the voters have chosen those, and we're going into general elections. And so the conversation switches from, you know, the party, uh, the family fights to to the general war, and the places, a lot of the places that were being contested in the Republican primaries, say, in March, aren't really the races that are being contested in November, where, you know, what we're looking at is districts where the Democrats or the Republicans have a reasonable chance to win, and um, so you have to reset all of your, you know, you have to recalibrate everything. I think everybody now is looking at how many, uh, can the Republicans hold their advantages in the House and the Senate? Um, I don't think that they're going to lose control of either one, but are they going to lose the super majorities or lose some seats? Where might that happen? And those are all of the kinds of questions that are now at the front of, you know, at, at the on the front burner for people who watch politics really closely. What's going to happen in November? Which races 
should you have an eye on, and that's what reset after the primary runoff. He is Ross Ramsey. You can find him there, again, at Ross Ramsey on Twitter, and go check out his pieces at texastribune.org. Ross, thank you again for another good counseling session, buddy. It's always a pleasure. I'm always waiting for you to fall asleep on that couch someday. I won't. I will not. Fully engaged. Sarah Davis is an attorney, and she is in her fourth term as state representative for Texas House District 134. That's in University Place, and for those of us up on the Cap Rock, that's near Houston. She was elected to the Texas House of Representatives in 2010 and served on public health and judiciary and civil jurisprudence, almost did that in one breath, committees her subsequent re-election to her second term, 2012, saw her increase in responsibility. She served on public health, calendars, and appropriations, and if you're new to Texas politics, uh, those latter two means that uh, she's a bull in the house, serving on Health and Human Services uh, article of the Appropriations Committee. That's a lot to say there. Sarah Davis, how are you? Doing great. How are you, my West Texas friend? I'm, uh, I'm pretty good. So the first female to stare down a sitting Texas governor in a re-election... Yeah. It uh, it kind of feels like Representative David Chair Chairwoman Davis Chairwoman Davis because you're cracking fine. you're cracking those TABC skulls. Um, it kind of feels like that if uh, you're unbeatable at this point and uh, that you might, if there were a Mount Ra- Ru- excuse me Mount Rushmore in uh, the Grand Canyon of Texas of Texas women. Uh, that you might join Ma Ferguson, Ann Richards, and Barbara Jordan. How do you feel about that? Well, I would say, first of all, nobody is unbeatable. Uh, we are we are all uh, replaceable, uh, you know, based on, on our constituents. Oh, uh, the, the shower of humility <laughs> just raining over us. You stared down a very popular Texas governor in your own district, a guy who spent a couple of hundred, excuse me, yeah, a couple of hundred thousand dollars against you. I think it was a little more than a quarter of a million, yeah. Okay, so now that we're going on technicalities, let's get into the technicalities of politics. (laughs) Very undoable for you to be beaten at this point. I mean, one might see that you might hold that office as long as those constituents see that you're meeting their interest and uh, as long as you want to do it? Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, my district is a pretty one of those unique districts in Texas. It's, uh, sometimes we say it's a purple district, but it's one of those swing districts. So, you know, the challenge doesn't end in March after the primary. Um, although certainly this was the toughest primary that I've had to experience, um, you know, having to go up against um, the essentially the governor, and I, I believe that uh, our attorney general also involved himself a bit um, in the election. But we still have to, you know, work hard and and you know for the November election. Um, so it's just it's just one of those areas that. Um, that you you know you always have to work um, for for both of those elections and and we're on the we're on the Democrat you know top ten uh, seat 
feet to try and, you know, recapture or take back. Um, because I originally, when I won in 2010, I had beat the incumbent Democrat at the time. Hmm. So people wonder, Sarah Davis is on the other side of Texas. Usually we deal with more rural issues, but I will point out to listeners, you do serve in the largest medical district, quote unquote, in Texas. And so I want to get into some health care and mental health care here in just a moment. And there's plenty of then diagram overlap from where we're broadcasting this program but i do want to ask you i mean you you went at the governor for the past couple of legislatures on essentially pay to play that if you give the governor enough money then you can be appointed to committees is is that wrong for people to say like myself the reason Greg Abbott went after you is because you went after pay-to-play and tried to lower the the cap, essentially, on what you could contribute to the Texas governor in order to be appointed? Well, you know, I think that there was a, probably a series of things. Um, ethics, you know, ethic is, ethics issue was one that um, we were working on. I'm the chair of the General Investigating and Ethics, and you know, when the governor, he had made ethics reform, you know, part of his state of the state emergency items the last two sessions. And when the regular session ended, I really didn't think we saw as much reform um, as I think Texans deserve. And then we got called back for a special session and, you know, we're dealing with things that, you know, for instance, this tree ordinance that the governor wanted to take away our local government's abilities. And that may not, I mean, you know, that may not be an issue that's important in, you know, in your neck of the woods, but in in Houston down yeah, here, you know, we're, we really love these trees. And so we have some pretty strict tree ordinances and, and on the city level, and I never had a constituent call me upset about um, the cities wanting to protect our canopies down here. So I felt like, hey, you uh, know, some of wh- the stuff that the governor a, wanted us to do is not... <laughs> the <laughs> go, tree, go the tree. Go you ahead. all don't know. I know you don't know what that, that is, but I just felt like we were wasting a lot of time, you know, being there for... A, special session with these 21 items that most of which had failed already in the regular session and there wasn't any kind of communication or relationships or coalitions that had been built from the time we we ended the regular session until the time we started the special session so there was no real I never thought there was a real plan for success in most of these most of the issues and so I know I pointed out at a press conference that perhaps if we have the time to to be there for the, some some reasons that maybe we could focus on ethics and of course my colleague Lyle Larson um, he he actually filed the the legislation that would limit the amount of money um, appointees or folks that are appointed by the government can contribute to the governor um, and we highlighted that at the at the press conference and. And also, you know, brought up the fact that, um, you know, we were, people were raising money during the special session, which a lot of us didn't even think was legal. So that was a loophole that I thought needed to be closed. Um, but the governor certainly did not um, take kindly to to that. And, you know, I think he, he made his decision and 
maybe it was about me and but maybe it was you know most likely bigger than me and you know wanting the governor to show how powerful he is and how he could you know influence um elections and it didn't turn out the way he wanted in my case um nor did it in Lyle's case of course Lyle Larson um have you spoken but, have you spoken to the governor since no, no, no. Okay. I've not spoken. So, <laughs> so no. not on each other's Christmas cards list heading into June. The, you know, I actually, I think I, I did get a Christmas card from him this year, actually. But I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll still be on the list. I know I get um, at least three fundraising letters from him a week. So <laughs> let me regroup. Sarah Davis joined us here on the program. And I will say, you know, every time we open this program, most of the time, whenever I remember to say it, this studio is where Buddy Holly played his Sunday parties. And a lot of people in Lubbock at that time looked at Buddy Holly like he was crazy. Like, we have no idea what you're playing, but that stuff doesn't go around here. But he was independent. And so another reason that we have you on the program is because you do have an independent streak, Sarah Davis, and I dig that about you. Um, Tell me about something I hear from a lot of people about. And people just have my email, and then they, especially as the legislature comes into session, Sarah Davis, what are we going to do about this acute care therapy program? Where, for people who are not familiar, this is a program that helps kids who live sometimes a very poor quality of life. They could be conjoined twins. They could have G-tubes through which they're fed every day. I've talked to fathers who are diesel mechanics and they carry a second job and the medical expenses are still so high that they still were at that point in time eligible for this program, but we've gone in and we've defunded this. And again, you're down in West University Place, but in my view, and you may disagree, this these cuts hit rural people harder than they most other, do most other people because what we're essentially doing is depriving them of home health care and requiring that they come into hospitals. That's my summation. You can correct me if I'm off on some basis there. But by and large, you stood up on this program. What can we expect to be done about that program going forward? Well, I I have nothing to correct about what you said. You're absolutely right. I mean, these are children that have can have such severe seizures that they can break their bones. I mean, these are our most medically fragile children. And I do think it disproportionately affects um, families in rural areas. And and not only, and one of the main reasons is because, y'all, there's a loss of providers. You know, we're not short of health care providers down here in Houston, Texas, right? I've got the Texas Medical Center in my backyard, literally. And But in rural parts of Texas, because of these cuts, you're seeing these providers they're not able to be in business. And they're not able um, to make a profit. They can't. They can't make a profit, um, and they were never really making a profit. Really, if you if you if you were to listen to some of the providers who traveled from all over the state to come and testify um, in in a couple of my hearings, these people were not getting rich off, you know, providing these services to the child to children, but. They can't, they have to be able to, you know, pay their rent and pay their employees, and they just couldn't do it. So you see these providers just leaving, and it really hurts what we'd call the network 
um, of providers, and, and rural kids are really suffering from it. I, I tried um, my darndest to reverse those therapy cuts, <clears throat> and I even had, you know, it was a, it was a bipartisan, it was Democrats and, uh, what is it, the Freedom Caucus, you know, everybody came together, um, and we had a unanimous vote in the, on the House floor to restore these cuts. And it was just $70 million. Um, but the Senate didn't, they, you know, they wouldn't budge on it. And, and obviously the governor, he wouldn't add it to the special session. So, you know, those cuts were not reversed. I mean, we're going to, I'm going to continue to work on it next session. But you're looking at a pretty rough um, budget outlook going in, you know, to the next legislative session because, you know, we do all sorts of different tricks with the budget, but we we shortchange the Medicaid program in general anywhere between two and three billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And you know, we delayed some things like um, some sales tax collections that that's supposed to be sent to the uh, highway fund. We delayed the 2019 payment, and that's about 1.6 billion dollars there. So just coming back into the next legislative session, we're looking at some pretty big holes in the budget that we're going to have to fill with a, with a supplemental bill. And that doesn't even take into account Harvey, which is, you know, in the, in, in the Gulf Coast area, Harvey has just really destroyed a lot of our communities. And agencies have been shifting money to pay for Harvey expenses and that money is going to have to be accounted for, you know, when we go back in. So it's going to be an uphill battle, but it, it is so important that we that we continue to focus on it because we're going to have a lot of issues. But those therapy cuts have just, I just think, have been just devastating, and it just and it just and it just breaks my heart. And a lot of these folks will, you know. But like you mentioned, working two jobs, we have, I've heard testimony from veterans, you know, who served our country, have come and took, taken time out of their day to come and testify and explain the effects of these cuts on their children. And it is heartbreaking to, 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 to learn about it. And then it's, I don't understand how you cannot act. I don't, I never did understand how the Senate could not want to act or the, really the governor and not get the attention you know give it the attention that i thought it deserved and so sarah davis where you and i will disagree is on the abortion issue the life issue however you want to look at it but where mm-hmm. you and i will not disagree i believe is that there's an in and i got into this a little bit with mike collier the candidate for mm-hmm. lieutenant governor on the democratic side there's an incongru- incongruity here that we are going to force by law parents to go in and get an ultrasound to see that they are having uh, conjoined twins or children with holes in their hearts or whatever the case might be. But then the state, brain stem. the state is not going to backstop that at that like There has to be a point of integrity here. And that's what really irks me and really grinds my gears and quite frankly breaks my heart on this acute care acute care therapy thing amongst republican rank and file especially you know we're going to go line by line 
literally with the party platform well where is it that you're going to give people some respite and give them some relief uh, on this issue if you expect them down the line to you will have these children by god right and you're going to have these children and we're not going to provide the type of support that you need i mean we've seen groups like texas right to life you know, they spend millions and millions of dollars every election cycle. Why aren't they raising money, uh, you know, to, to help people that, that need help and that have made the decision to, um, to carry a child that may have some severe disabilities? But they're not focused on that, right? Where was Right to Life pressuring the Senate to take up and the governor to take up these therapy cuts and say, listen, we need, you know, to fund therapies for these children. They're not around. They're not advocating for those types of policies. And I will say, Sarah Davis, I'm not speaking anecdotally here, that I've talked with parents who knew what they were getting into, took the deep breath, and decided to carry through with it. I think in an admirable way, some people just expect them, but they don't live in these circumstances day to day. It just really, really bothers me. Okay, so I could stay on that, and you could, uh, <laughs> I, I could gripe to you another 10 minutes about that. But let's switch over to Medicaid for just a second. With your background in uh, public health and with mental health, and you say that we're shortchanging Medicaid, what are we doing about Medicaid fraud in this state? Well, the Health and Human Services Commission, that's the state agency that oversees the Medicaid program, and part of, or well, not part, but separate from HHSC um, is the Office of the Inspector General. And it is the job of that office to investigate waste and fraud and abuse um, and when they do, when they are successful, they're obviously, they, you know, collect um, money. Some of that has to go back up to the Fed because, remember, Medicaid is a, is a joint program that's paid for by federal dollars and state dollars. And so if we collect on some fraud case, part of that has to go back up to the Fed. And... Um, the, the Office of the Inspector General, or we'd call it the OIG, I think they do um, a pretty good job. And um, they have been very active in, in investigating. But when you're dealing, you know, I think you would see more fraud when we were under a fee-for-service program, which is we've moved now to what's called managed care. And so you have these managed care organizations that are um, in charge of, of, of providing all of the services that a Medicaid recipient would be, quote, entitled to under the law. And so, um, you know, they have every financial incentive to make sure that there isn't waste, fraud, or abuse because that affects their bottom line because there's a profit-sharing that takes place if an if a managed care organization is able to make a profit they actually have to share some of that with the state so they have a financial interest in making sure that there isn't fraud waste or abuse i'm not trying to say 
it doesn't happen because of course it absolutely does. Um, but I think the state of Texas does a pretty good job at going after that and, and, and really investigating and monitoring um, the, those types of situations. This past session, one of the bills I passed was actually to expand the authority of the Office of the Inspector General to investigate SNAP fraud the Supplemental Nutritious, Nutrition Assistance Program, because I'm here, I've been hearing horror stories about SNAP fraud. You know, people selling those, those debit cards for pennies on the dollar or, um, you know, really, there's really been, I think, an increase in, in fraud and SNAP. And so now we have the OIG, they've been empowered to investigate SNAP fraud. So I think that's a, I think that's a good step. Sarah Davis, my last real question before we get into some bottle rocket trivia <laughs> is this. You running for speaker. Me? Yes, you. No, no. No, definitively. I'm, I'm, running, I'm running for re-election. Uh, after a re-election, running for speaker? I, I, there's a some really good candidates out there that are running for speaker so I'm sure whomever we elect will be will, will be a good leader okay you know Clardy Travis Clardy's coming on the show tomorrow and I'm going to ask him the same question just just to be fair um, don't you feel like I just threw that out on you that's what I think that's why a lot of guys are like yeah maybe I'll find some time to come on the show like after November <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey Sarah can you hang out with us over the break and then we'll get in and play some trivia here in a second sure all right sarah davis sticking right with us here and uh now we get out of the seriousness and we get into the real business sarah davis uh bottle rocket probably the yeah. best movie of all time correct i couldn't agree with you more yeah. if you've not seen bottle rocket we're looking at i think uh, 1996 Three friends share a dream of the lives they wish they had. Anthony wishes he had someone to love. Bob yearns for the family he can no longer return to. And Dignan wants to distinguish himself in the dicey world of crime. Anthony, Bob, and Dignan will get what they want, but in ways they never imagined. Starring Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson, and directed by Wes Anderson. I believe Wes Anderson's first movie. And film there in Dallas. So, we both agree, best movie of all time. And uh, let's prove it here. You ready? Oh, I'm nervous. I'm more nervous about this than earlier. I mean, you and I... <laughs> it's not the Texas politics that get you. It's the bottle rocket trivia. It's the yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give you a question and be multiple choice. Oh, okay, good. Here's the quote. You know there is nothing to steal from my mom and option A, Craig, B, Rowboat, C, Larry, D, Rocky. A, Craig. You know there's nothing to steal from my mom and Craig. <laughs> You're right. Uh, what is Anthony doing when he first sees Inez? Buying a Coke, getting his hair cut, laying in bed, or swimming? Swimming. 
Ding, ding, ding. Right again. Where is Inez <laughs> from? Mexico, Puerto Rico, Guatemala, or Paraguay? Paraguay. Right again. What does Future Man refer to Dignan as? Cowboy, Buckaroo, Little Banana, or Loser? Oh, man, Future Man. Oh. Buckaroo. Little Banana was the correct answer. Wow, uh, because of the yellow jumpsuit. I'm snorting on air. What is the name of the cold storage place they set out to rob? The Harlow, oh, I have... the Langley, the Hinkley, or the Caldwell? Hinkley. You are correct. Were you about to say you had no idea? <laughs> yeah, but when I forgot it was a multiple choice. Okay. Final two. What is Dignan's handle on the walkie-talkies at the robbery? Bird dog, scarecrow, applejack, or jackknife? This one's kind of a star test. You kind of think two are right, but there's only one right one. Oh, I know it's not applejack because that was the get. That was he was in the in the uh, group. Bird dog. Oh, correct answer is scarecrow. Last one. What are Inez and Anthony? Look, you've only missed two. I know. What are Inez and... These are really in the weeds here. What are Inez and Anthony eating in the best movie ever while she studies her English in the laundry room? Chimichangas, burritos, tamales, or an enchilada? Oh, goodness. Chimichangas. It's tamales. One, two, three, four. Hey, you got four right. You wound up above 500, Sarah Davis. And uh, did I see, and I hate to bring up a, a heart sore for you, but your your pup, Mr. Henry, passed away? Yes. And Mr. Yes. Mr. Mr. Henry, Henry, a character in Bottle Rocket. He is, he is named after that character in Bottle Rocket. Yeah. That's that's why I named him Mr. Henry. But yes, unfortunately, Mr. Henry passed away the day before Hurricane Harvey hit. I'm sorry to hear it. I just, but I needed for the audience's sake to substantiate how much you think of that movie, Mr. Henry. Yes, and Rest and I peace. tricked my mom into naming her dog Izzy <laughs> for Inez. <laughs> And she doesn't know it. Oh, Sarah Davis. Ed, uh, tell me, I should know this off the top of my head. Is it Sarah for one? What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Sarah for 134. Sarah Davis HD. for 134? No, I know you have staffers who, who help you manage this. <laughs> at Sarah, <laughs> F-O-R, H-D, 134. An independent streak in Texas. We're going to see about you on that Mount Rushmore of... Texas Political Women. Thank you so much for taking time here. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Sarah Davis. Going to close out the program tomorrow. Travis Clardy. Hope to get in with some uh, Leonard T. Jenkins designated cotton stripper. Cotton in parentheses. 
And uh, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's program. Good stuff there. Look for it on our Apple Podcast. Check us out, OtherSideOfTexas.com. New content there. And again, thank you for sharing with your friends. Going to go home, all these kiddos, and uh, have an above-average dinner. We'll see you tomorrow on Other Side of Texas.